This is the Ampere Industrial Security Critical Assets Podcast. Each episode, we cover important OT and ICS security topics with an eye towards standards and regulation to keep you ahead of your adversaries and your auditors. Hi, everybody. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thanks for joining us on the Critical Assets Podcast. I am Patrick Miller, CEO of Ampere Industrial Security. With me today, I've got my friend, Danielle Jablonski. Danielle, tell us a little about yourself. Well, howdy, Patrick. I'm excited to be here. Um, Daniel Jablonski, I go by DJ often in my work life. I am an OT cybersecurity strategist at Nozomi Networks. I help with market strategy, product strategy, partner strategy, and all things. Where do I start? How do I mature? What am I getting right? And how do I work with the government? That's kind of the, the lay of the land for me in my position. Awesome. So... First question, how do they work with the government? <laughs> yeah, depends on which uh, sector, really. But um, that also goes back to the maturity levels, I would say, right? So I just wrote, I rewrote a piece of material for Nozomi about network segmentation. It started to bother me recently that we kind of laughed about this concept, network segmentation, as if it were so easy and so commonplace and just so obvious to asset owners and it isn't and it really started to grind my gears that people joked about it in a way that was like wow you're so immature if you're not even doing proper network segmentation we see that in very sophisticated environments and and even in enterprises and so i just rewrote you know some some material on this about there's kind of eight different subsets of what it means to do segmentation and how to get that right on that part of the journey um and then when it comes to working with government it really depends on what the government's asking and what they're willing to enforce, which is kind of a sad story because you see this rule or pattern where, um, you know, 40% of companies might invest in sunk costs to do some type of reporting or compliance or even voluntary um, type of regulations or standards. You could even throw a 6243 into that lump. Yeah. Um, and then you have the other 60% of organizations that just wait around to see how those sunk costs pay off for their competitors or their friends in, in their market or, or in other markets. And I think, honestly, if you were to really run the numbers for cyber, it'd be even smaller. I think you might have a an 80-20 rule when it comes to cybersecurity. Um, that's sad. And it's very reactionary. Um, and I think the government's task and trial and error right now is how to get people to do proactive security without having a major event. And that's yeah. really difficult to get right. It is. It is. I mean, the proactive part is is really difficult. I mean, it's that there's the old joke about there's there's never time to do it right, but there's always time to do it again or twice or five times. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And we've yeah. recently seen um, one organization that was hit by a major incident now say sky's the limit, budget's endless. And it, it shouldn't it take that. It doesn't have to be that way. Right. I mean, it, right. They're, they're going to end up in that state at some point because they will eventually have an issue that you know, makes them have this epiphany uh, and becomes the catalytic event. And why not just do that now? I mean, you're going to get there at some point. (laughs) Yeah. And it's imperfect, of course, you know that better than anyone. I mean, you work with your clients day to day on a much more granular level than than even solutions providers like Nozomi do. Um, But recently, the SEC rule has also gotten my gears grinded, grinding, depending on if I'm awake. Um, which is more and more often these days that I can't sleep because I'm up <laughs> thinking about this stuff. But I started to really get curious about risk at the board level, obviously, for the SEC rules and the reporting requirements and the 8K or 10K. And I gave this talk this week and I, I opened up with saying, 
when you're talking to your boards, you're talking to senior executives about these things, we need to really flip the script. For the longest time, boards and executives were doing risk management, which really turned into mitigation. Yeah. And this mitigation term is really what's bothering me now because in doing risk mitigation, they've been tasking their teams and subordinates with risk avoidance. Yeah. So you'll see them buy tools and say, we've got X, Y, and Z covered, but we're not doing the mitigation. The board's doing the mitigation by telling us to do avoidance. It should 125,000% be the other way around. Your boards and your executives should be avoiding risk by enabling the people that they pay to support the business to do mitigation all day, every day, whether that's with tools, policies, procedures, whatever it might be. Why are we having our actual boots on the ground avoiding risk? telling our leadership that it's mitigated and I, nobody can see my air quotes, but you can Patrick, when it should be in order to avoid a worst case scenario, in order to avoid an incident, I'm going to have to consider material and report and disclose and potentially be reprimanded for. I should be doing proactive real-time day-to-day security and enabling teams to mitigate events before they become incidents. Right. This is my yes. party line now. This is my new Put it Hallelujah. on my gravestone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's funny. Um, I've I'm, been studying the NIS2 uh, directive out of Europe, and their, uh, I guess, direction that they're taking with the senior leadership, the governance, the you know senior management, as they call it, um, they're looking at you know either suspending or banning members from participating in senior leadership, um, and up to and including even publicly naming and shaming them as the source for the bad decision that caused the risk to happen. So um, it's interesting to see you know, uh, situations like that. If if the situation weren't bad enough to get to that state, we wouldn't have corrective actions like this in place. Right. The one thing I really like about NIST too, you, you pointed out kind of a scary reality, which is also a reality for CISOs now in the U.S. with this this. Uh, SEC rule, people are speculating that kind of the same thing that happened to the Uber CISO would be able to be more mainstream with yeah. or or it would set a precedent related to SEC. But the thing I really like about the NIST 2 directive is even though nation states are going to develop different policies, procedures, and practices within their own countries, that guidance document tackles proportionality. Yes. And no other document does. So for any listener that wonders what that means, go and open and read that, that they don't want companies, small businesses to go bankrupt in order to check compliance boxes that, again, avoid risk, quote unquote, without actually mitigating risk. So there's that perfect balance. And it's difficult to write legislation to find that balance. But I think that every um, governing body should really look into that proportionality disclosure in there and try to adopt that or at least extend it to SEC, CISA, DOE in the U.S. Um, yeah. and elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, even NERC for sure. Yeah, yeah. agreed. Especially as NERC moves out from bulk systems into medium and, and low impact. Yeah, and I, it, from what I'm seeing, at least in the NERC space, it, their their jurisdiction is squarely in generation and transmission. But there are other efforts that are going to reach into distribution very soon, mm-hmm. um, and they should have that in mind. Yeah, absolutely. And then the EPA one is a good example as well. Yeah, yeah, which proportionality. Yeah, matters. It does. It does. Well, we're kind of close to the topic I wanted to to, to um, friendly debate with you today because we've talked about this before and we seem to be on, uh, we have different perspectives on this. So essentially, um, if you could make one regulation, like the thing that they have to do, right? Uh, 
or the most important regulation, because, you know, obviously you never just get one. But if you had to pick one and you had to pick a most important one, what would that be? Like, what's the key thing that you absolutely should regulate? Right. We have discussed this before, and I love talking to you about all things, but this in particular is kind of my call to action today, okay. given the landscape today, right? Because we've we, a lot of times uh, security folks will talk about, well, in a perfect world or five to 10 years from now, no, today, right. my answer will be threat hunting should be mandatory in OT networks. Okay. And in order to do that, you can remain agnostic to which tools or types of security programs you promote. And governments have to be agnostic in terms of what tools and types of programs they support. Yeah, so getting not into prescribe, market. Not, so exactly. that they don't prescribe the means, but they prescribe the ends. So they don't prescribe the means and they also don't, you know, do marketing for companies and drive profit for, for the free and open market, that kind of that a thing. It never happens. No, no. no. But <laughs> there's fewer solutions providers in this space, if you want to talk about the core industrial yeah. cybersecurity is kind of the blanket term yeah. that I'll use. Um, rather than saying, you know, this entire sector has to buy this kind of tool to do this kind of outcome, or, hey, everyone has to report no matter what, and we're going to give different um, thresholds for how you report what, and what is is high bar enough that meets that threshold to be reported in the first place, what's material. Uh, Circea is still ironing out, you know, their definitions and terms. But yeah. as I've told you in the past, it baffles me, to be quite honest, and I'm not making fun of anyone, right? These are, these are hard jobs, and I love to underscore that. The government compliance right, you know, standards regimes yeah. are not easy to get right. You're never going to make anyone ha everyone happy. But I think it's odd and awkward to require incident reporting, reporting without requiring threat hunting to some degree. Um, Again, not a perfect world. You're not going to find everything in all of these environments. But if I'm a company that's in the crawl stage of crawl, walk, run for my OT security program, and yes, I have to disclose an incident, but no, I don't have to go and look for them proactively or find threat actors to my networks or actually map the CVEs that I know about or figure out whether I was impacted by solar winds or figure out whether I will be impacted by the next uh, insecure protocol. Now you have entire protocols that are are uh, considered exploitable yeah. right that's yeah. all of those things require me looking into it right and if i don't have to look into it until this sec rule right that might change things it won't change tomorrow maybe six months later it if i don't have to go SEC. and look for it if yeah. i'm not mandated to go and look for it but i'll tell you when i've been victimized for sure i'll let you know <laughs> it sounds funny but it's true in reality that's the way that it works right now right i'm not if i'm not looking and you don't tell me to go look and I have to tell you when somebody busts in and makes a really bad day for me, then obviously I'll do that. But until then, they could be in the closet and I don't I don't know. And I'm not going to go and find out. Yeah. And there's um, the one of the examples we've got is at least the established examples is NERCSIP. They do have incident reporting requirements. And believe it or not, they actually do have something that looks maybe from a distance like threat hunting in it. Vulnerability. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, for the, uh, for the high impact space, at least, if you're a high impact control center, um, there's a requirement that you basically, uh, every 15 calendar days, you're supposed to look for things that your existing detection tools don't show you. You got to, it's, it's, like I say, right. from, from a distance, it could be glommed onto something like threat hunting. Right. Um, that's as close as I've seen uh, regulated right now. Uh, yeah. yeah. 
even I think I guess it should be vulnerability and threat hunting in the, in the same because to me threat hunting is both not just okay. actions and activities. Okay, that's so I'm not saying yeah I'm not saying specifically threat intelligence hunting for actions activities escalation etc. I mean both. Okay. Threat, looking for a vulnerability that would be exploited by a, a threat actor in my mind is still threat hunting whether or not you're reporting you know systems that you can't patch in your organization but you know have vulnerabilities yeah. and what, what you're doing to build the moat, right? The security controls that you're putting around those to mitigate them. That's all part of threat hunting in my mind. We don't have a good term for it. The best alternative in the market is really kind of like attack surface management, but that's so salesy. Yeah. But, it feels like an RSA booth right now. I mean, yeah. right. <laughs> but if I could mandate something, I would mandate hands-on keyboards looking for things. And those things would be both vulnerabilities that could be exploited, vulnerabilities that require security controls, as well as threat activity, if I could find it, right? That's okay. a whole nother. Well, then, then that begs the follow-on question, and then what? Right, so if they find something in the attack surface management, we'll just use that for- Yeah. Um, when they, if and when they find something, then what? So this is my other favorite kind of dichotomy. I mentioned the mitigation versus avoidance dichotomy. Um, I've also said before that one organization's incident is another organization's event. So a security event, if you have resources to remediate, identify, and and deal with something, means it doesn't have to be an incident. Uh, a public uh, example of this that was published was when Intel Intelligent Buildings uh, found Whispergate malware on a building management system. That could have led to an, a high consequence event, as we would kind of describe it in an OT world, of cyber-physical impacts that have happened, right? It didn't. It was alerted on, detected, remediated, and addressed. So that's kind of the ultimate, you know, caliber of how you want to handle security events that yeah. don't become incidents. That's again, that's in, a, that's, in, yeah. that's in a perfect world. Yeah. Um, but again, the earlier you know what you're looking at, the better equipped you are to reduce the severity of impacts. And that has become my Nozomi party line. But I do think that that potential is there. And I think you're not going to be able to reduce the severity if you don't look for things early and often. So early and often would be my shields up, right? What does that mean to me? Early and often looking into vulnerabilities and threat activity internally, right? I, I always take the effects-based approach. I've, I've yeah. talked about this before too, rather than the means-based approach. I'm not looking at a specific APT group and wondering what they can do to me. I'm looking at my operations, my single points of failure, my interdependent factors, my billing systems, whatever that is, and understanding the worst case scenario in my organization and how a cyber event could impact that worst case scenario, right? In a in the real world, not some hypothetical way that, you know, hacker 101 can just do crazy shit. No, I'm a I'm a firm believer that you you don't need a neighborhood watch or even an alarm system if you haven't if you're not going to lock your doors and windows it's just it doesn't matter at that point yeah yeah okay well i i may be swaying more toward agreeing with your perspective because mine's always no been, disagree fight me mine's always been um breach notification is the most important part and uh, I think because you're you're basically involving incident reporting after the fact that they've done their threat hunting to find the incident proactively, which I definitely see value there. Um, I guess I had resigned myself, and maybe this is a fault, to the fact that organizations just aren't going to do that. 
and that it's going to take them to have an event in order for them to actually do something about this. Um, maybe that's just a cynic in me. Uh, I, I, with that, um, when I say breach notification, there's a couple of things that come with it. Implied in that is that you are actually looking. You have the capability to look. You have the capability to detect. Um, you would know a breach if it happened, right? That that's that's the that's implied in that kind of a requirement. My basis. The litmus for, test. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my basis for desiring this over other things is, uh, and this could also fit well within the, the the thrunting part as well. But my I have this this strong need to get actuarial data because every time we have a real incident uh, or you know near miss, I hate the term oxymoron, but mm -hmm. um, we just don't have a lot of data here. We are, I mean, let's be honest, we're guessing. I mean, we, we know stuff that works. Statistically, but, yes. But by and large, I mean, if if I drank and smoke and ate burgers with bacon and, and you know, basically guzzled down bacon fat all day long, we know Patrick's going to die at 40 because of these reasons. And because we have, you know, ostensibly a thousand years or so of healthcare actuarial data, real data on what kills people and what doesn't. Um, but we base those risk decisions on real data. And right now we have such little data or the data we have is skewed in you know um, uh, legal arguments and NDAs and all kinds of other ways, so you get unclear pictures at best, mm -hmm. and we're really basing a lot of our decisions on these things. So well, to use your example, though, we also have humans that drink, smoke, and you and know, just don't care. Yeah, no, and live to be eighty-five. <laughs> it's true. True. Yeah. There, are, there will always no... be the anomalies. No, right. no doubt there. But that's that's my drive to to try to get the focus on those areas. And the, the hard part, I get it. The hard part about it is actually defining what an incident is and all of those things, uh, and what to report and what is you know what is useful data. But at my my background is science, and you just got to start measuring, and then you can tweak your measurements. But I don't think we have enough to effectively measure yet, and that's that's part of the reason I push so hard on the the capability for, for incident, or not incident response, but breach notification, which is kind of the same. But So I think that that kind of view is not cynical. I think that's a perfect worldview and a perfect world. If we had a bunch of historical data to do trend analysis of and do that kind of actuarial science, like you said, that could lead to leaps and bounds in terms of insurance and understanding yes. of cyber threat and cascading failures and impacts and yeah. uh, fallout analysis, all the things that I care deeply about, but that's not the world that we live in. But I do think with CIRCEA and, and the SEC rules and the way I put it when Ethos was announced as an early warning capability. And I, I wanna point to that rather than a specific tool because I don't wanna shove detection down anyone's throats. You can do threat hunting without detection yeah. It's harder. It's more manual, but you can do it. You can do CTI. You can do physical pen testing. You can do assessment tools. You can do mapping to different standards. You can do MITRE, right? There are a lot of ways to run, uh, walk, crawl, run within threat hunting that looks at an internal diagnostic, to go back to your medical analogy, yeah. Yeah. of what is our status today? What kind of activities can we track in our networks and how? And how do we get better? How do we improve that? But if you think about early warning, knowing that in today's world, very soon, you're going to have to report on incidents, then don't you want to have a positive outcome where you were able to respond early? That's kind of the new comparative analysis you have to do, because it's not just reporting. When you have an incident, you have to respond. And I think part of the reason that so much data is kept from the public on actual events, actual high consequence 
potential near misses or maybe not is because so few people actively do instant response in this in this space and i think we if if i had a second maybe mandatory uh emphasis that i would push after threat hunting to include vulnerability analysis would be actually preparing personnel for incident response because again nobody knows what an incident is there's no definition there's no threshold right we think we know we we don't really disclose exactly what that looks like but for me today if people ask me how do i build my organization up to prepare for ir it's not a retainer not even with our partners it's for me just in my opinion i think that the most cost effective way to have anyone on your security team your it team your ot team your engineering team prepare for an incident is actually the very inexpensive 6443 certification yeah paired with ICS for ICS what a beautiful marriage that is for personnel yeah, yeah. so that's the the low cost low hanging fruit thing you could do that isn't wow well, if something happens i also have to publicly disclose it probably become a headline probably pay a fine probably suffer losses Oh, and also pay a bunch of money on my retainer to have somebody parachute in and maybe help me. True. Yeah, that's True. not a good out- outlook. No, no. And, and this I, I do like the 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 approach of 6443 with ICS for ICS, both of those uh together for a low-cost option. That's a fantastic recommendation. Yeah, and I don't even have that cert, but I think it's like twelve hundred dollars. Yeah. Plus the ICS for ICS, which is free and it's at a lot of events. Yeah. In one year, if you had yeah. three people on your team do those two things, I say this and it's a little bit contentious, but I've said it publicly. Your number one job is to make yourself a less attractive target than the next oil and gas company, than the next utility, than the next. Exactly. That sucks, but that's reality yeah. of borderless cyber offense and defense, yes. right? Yep. And imagine if you had one to three people on any given team you know, you could scale this to size. So for a small medium business, you have one, uh, you know, enterprise two, and for the fortune global companies, you have three people, just that amount of people would really flip the script on how you do planning. And then those people could lead your tabletop exercise conversations and make sure that you don't just have a third party that's going to prepare every single company for a similar ransomware incident. They're going to actually be able to say, no, I understand effects based security and I understand our organization. And now I understand the very basics of 6443 and a live uh, emergency event, putting all that together again in six months to one year could really revolutionize the preparedness of a company's security team. Yeah, and that that puts us back into the the um, incident response category. So that's what I've struggled with is, you know, if you could only pick one, but I I right. that that's obviously an artificial construct. Um, but I would I would easily put um, the threat hunting in as like a close second, if not on par with the importance of the, the breach notification. Yeah. Um, well, and I it, guess it'd be different of of who you're wanting to benefit, you know, benefiting public the public as a whole. Yeah, I think breach notification benefiting the company uh, under attack. I think threat hunting. Well, that's that's part of what I, where, where my my I guess my perspective or my basis for that was as, as a former regulator, you, you write the regulation not for the company, but for the greater public good. And that's where I, I know that I talk to tons of executives that are wondering, you know, if they're if they're spending their money in the right place and they go through these, um, you know, we try to get to places of risk quantification, which is 
in the Holy Grail, because you can actually like look in terms of dollars and cents of what's right. making a difference and what's not. But that also depends on the garbage in garbage out factor of if you start with bad data, you get bad results. Well, and um, also it's kind of, I think this is Josh Corman's term, but it really speaks to a lot of my own independent research, that centralization of risk. Yeah. It's easy to do for bulk power, easy to see, yeah. uh, less easy to do for hospitals, right? Yeah. Easy to do for, I don't know, oil and gas maybe? Yeah. And, oh, manufacturing, super easy to do, right? We have numbers of business disruption and losses because we understand yeah. the price per product per hour, right? Yes, yes. Much harder to do for water. So, I mean, if you can't tackle that problem, then it's always going to be bad data. Yeah, it does make it hard to get to like that um, dollars per second of downtime risk kind of yeah. kind of yeah. equation they're looking for. But they yeah. can look at you know, like risk offset based on money spent on certain technologies, drops, you know, risk scores in certain ways from a quantification right. perspective. We do have the science down there, um, but that's, uh, that's that, like I said, that's kind of the holy grail. A lot of organizations, it's, it's a lot of effort to, to get to that, 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 uh, that, those numbers basically. May I ask you a question? Is that, is that not the norm here? It's totally allowed. Well, so because you said as a former regulator, the, you know, you're, your interest is in the public good and the public benefit of regulation, not the you know company specific um, payments or penalties. We just mentioned attack surface management and how that's really a marketing term, but in in reality, it becomes these multiple point solutions. And I've also reminded people time and time again, and nobody likes to be reminded of this, that cybersecurity is an unregulated market. Yes, that is. It's, it is what it is, right? That's kind of where we're at today. But that reminder to folks and, and in the interest of public good, how do you in your practice and in your kind of, you know, your own pontification, think about educating and, and helping with all these point solutions if you really want to get a tax service management right? Because that could be, you know, in the best interest of the public, but it's really not the role of governments to do that. So then who would be, you know, regular, it'd be weird for regulators to say, no, 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 these are, this is the best, uh, combination of tools it'd be really weird for the private sector right because we all have an interest and i've always struggled with that who's the best voice of reason to actually help companies without some kickback in doing a tax service management and selecting you know for lack of better term point solutions i mean we'd all love to have platforms but they really are a lot of point solutions today no but but that that's a fantastic question and and there's there's a conflict of interest in in any um governing agency to side with any particular product that that's a clear conflict of interest especially in capitalist free market arrangements uh, like ours uh so you know that said what we do see in some cases is at least um like benchmarking minimum capabilities and making sure that things have been certified against some set of engineering standards those kinds of things like um you know there are labs for example that will certify against certain things Right. And there's discussion of stuff like that. Uh, the, the National Cybersecurity Strategy and some other places talk about these things. Um, so it's I do, I think we're getting closer. At least we're we're no longer ignoring the elephant in the room. We're at least putting it in writing. We're talking about the fact that it's a good idea. Some are starting to propose some some ideas, and and I I while I applaud them, there it it runs. In my brain, at least, it's running in two completely opposite directions where this is a great idea and we should have something like this and there should be liability and there should be testing against standards and baseline the products. At the same time, running in the other direction is the fact that um, security changes by the minute and threat actors change by the minute. And we're not really looking at an, a set of engineering specifications. We're looking at preventing malice. 
And that to me, it's, it's very difficult because the only place I've seen that is a, even a rough correlation is like, um, fire, uh, it's kind of one of those unmanageable risks, but we figured out things like building codes and, you know, inspections from fire marshals and yep, insurance and all of those things. So there's this kind of, um, literally everybody in the entire game has something to do with managing little bits of the overall fire risk, right? So I think at some point we're going to end up with something that looks like that. We will have things like quote unquote building codes for our environment. We'll have fire marshals for our environment. We'll have insurance for our environment for those that actually do it right and, and yeah. didn't just, you know, ignore all the leave your smoke detector out and never put a battery in, that kind of thing. I've actually been really shocked at how fast insurance has moved on this factor. They yeah. will consider your policy null and void if you do not yeah. verify that you are actually practicing a control or utilizing a tool that you've said you were using. For the yeah. longest time, we said, no, they can't become de facto regulators. That's still true. They can't fine you. They can't do anything like punitive, but they can render your policy null yeah. pull your policy and decide to never give you another one. Yep. And I've seen that move. So I wrote a, a report on cyber insurance for the energy industry, maybe 2021. And I've seen them move so fast on that. I just had a meeting last week here in Dallas with uh, one of the guys that's working on the actuarial science for doing warranties on AI capabilities Oh wow! for Munich Re. And they have a whole policy that basically says, if you, Patrick, utilize an AI tool and you understand the error of margin that you're supposed to see, and that you get some type of indicator, say it's a predictive maintenance system, and you get some type of indicator and you, Patrick, as an organization, go spend money based on that indicator and it was wrong and it was outside the error margin you've accepted, that's covered. They have that, I was blown away. They actually have the AI portion figured out better than cyber because you can actually investigate algorithms and you can understand yeah. and quantify error margins. Yeah. So then when we kept bringing that kind of comparison back to liability and warranties for cybersecurity products, he couldn't, he couldn't tell me, he said, you know, more than me, you tell me. And I was like, I don't know that much, <laughs> but they are, they're doing it. And we're seeing it. Um, the precedent is being set in courts for better or for worse. I don't, I don't have an opinion on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. I, I do see um, the need for, and it's a controversial one as well, like the federal backstop, like Fatara did for the terrorism insurance, because the catastrophic loss could literally be enough to bankrupt an insurer and reinsurers of the insurer. Right. Um, if, if they did actually get you know legally bound to some claim, um, which would be... It, rare situation but it is it's certainly yeah. possible and that's what keeps them so so uh, hesitant and so it, they front and load all of this um you know risk equation so that if you don't do these things well, you're just not covered yeah okay but that word plausible i was talking to an oem uh product vp about this somebody in the, the c-suite about exactly that the plausibility of a catastrophic event that really exploits a particular system or set of systems from a vendor at scale at the same time Mm -hmm. But there's this key factor in the, having the access to those systems distributed in the world within a sector or within multiple sectors at the same time. So like technically, if you have the exploitation capacity in real time to exploit all of those, like the vulnerability existed, yes, you could have cascading failures. But has anyone actually looked at any type of mathematical or probability analysis for whether or not a threat actor or a bunch of threat actors or a bunch of accidental um, clowns could actually have the required access at one time 
to impact those distributed vendor systems with those known vulnerabilities and exploitation at scale in real time? Like, has that ever been documented? To my knowledge, no. But I, when I have these conversations with uh, underwriters and executives within the insurance space or the ISL, um, ILS markets, um, they're not so worried about one like a log4j that's you know ubiquitous across so many platforms and you would need access for example to some of those places to get it they're looking at um these really complex interdependency models where there is cascading downstream risk where the risk rolls up to the original in the kind of instantiator of the the, the cascade yeah, so, so cloud is a good example for that yeah yeah cloud so then you can take like the like the horseshoe nail so if you're the horseshoe nail and you end up losing the horseshoe which loses the horse which loses the rider which loses the battle then you end up being this problem that it's such a the 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 risk to the insurer of that organization is everyone sues upstream that mm -hmm. just makes it bigger for them so that that's what they typically see versus the widespread ubiquity right but the only model i've ever seen where it, the math is there and it makes perfect sense is really the big three cloud providers yeah. I haven't seen it ironed out. I mean, I see it hypothetically and speculative elsewhere, which is still good research, right? The Lloyds of London is one of my favorite papers. Yeah. Um, but realistically, I've only seen the data on uh, interdependence on, on third-party cloud provided yeah. either infrastructure or analysis and data storage, of course. Um, but it's interesting. So I'm glad I got to ask you as well. Yeah, I think uh, there's some NIAC uh, papers on the interdependencies that, that a lot of the insurance people point to that kind of thing, but, mm -hmm. but yeah. Well, for me, so I, I did have a little bit of a background in that and it was less sector specific and more portfolio specific from a capital investment uh, yeah. perspective. So really, but again, that's totally incongruent with our understanding of product vulnerabilities and OEM uh, yes. penetration. So yeah. I would love to see more work on that. Right. Um, if I, I always pick on Charles Schwab, but if I wanted to cause an economic impact, I would pick a very particular portfolio of Charles Schwab investment. And I would take out these companies or I would impact those companies at the same time at scale. And that would have cascading impacts that are easy to track financially that could lead to a kind of a 2008 scenario is the hypothesis. It's not my hypothesis, but that's the the industry hypothesis. But that's totally incongruent with the potential to impact systems, especially in an OT uh, perspective, at particular vent from particular vendors in asset owners at scale at once, right? Totally different science, math, hypothesis, et cetera. So, you need to you need to put an AI on this or a smart researcher. <laughs> yeah, no, I would love to see that, and I think space. You know, now that we're having this critical discussion about space being critical yeah. infrastructure and all of the 55 national security functions relying on space systems, whether that's, you know, geo int or positioning, um, they yeah. all do rely on it. We've known that for a long time. The conversation still became, well, you need this level of access and you have to be able to understand this level of technical competency at uh, a, a base station and all these things. And everyone's saying, yeah, people have that and they're putting it all together. That one could be another interesting um, discussion from the either the insurance or the cascading impacts um, mathematical. Some PhD student, I hope, is listening at some point and will. I hope put so. This, yeah, yes. put this down on paper. Get, get some smart people to use some smart tech to solve these problems. Yeah, but I think space is kind of a good example as well for interdependence. I think so. Too. Yeah. Okay. So I, I'm thinking, um, I still think that breach notice 
from from my perspective, slightly edges out threat hunting. I would like okay. to include threat hunting in the like the fact that in order for you to notice a breach, you'd have to you'd have to be doing some threat hunting. So I think that's right. part of it. How does that how does that feel? I don't. You're not going to sway me only because <laughs> only because in my mind, and I I you could change my mind, but in my mind, it's actually easier to enforce threat hunting than it is. Okay, well that that's an interesting. So think about the enforcement mechanism. I, so if you're I, well, enforcing incident. I people did. are always working that. around the definition. So they're like, oh, it's not material to me or, oh, it's not an incident. They don't have yeah. perfect definitions. So you can always find a workaround. If right. I come to you and say, Patrick, I know I'm the government now and I know of a solar winds type new novel zero day. And I come to you and say, hey, this isn't even public yet, but I need you to verify because it's mandatory that you do threat hunting. I need you to verify whether or not you can find it in your environment. Think about how revolutionary that type of mandatory enforcement now that you can't scale either but if the compliance wasn't you have this tool or you do this control check this box and the compliance instead was show me the receipts that you can find something when i call upon you to find something because you can audit for that but you can also use that in a crisis situation or a high consequence situation that enforcement is easy to put down on paper because you can actually evolve that there's an evolution to that so even if I say to you, I don't care how you do it, but I will mandate that you do threat hunting to the extent that when you are asked to, to produce the how, and I ask you for supply chain incident, I ask you for uh, software vulnerability, widespread software vulnerability, I ask you for even looking for specific threat hunters or for specific APT groups, can you show me that you can identify this part of the MITRE attack chain, right? There's different ways to do it. And that's up to the organization, their resources, et cetera. But when I come and ask, can you show me that you can find things? Yeah. So this CVE was published six months ago. Can you show me that you do or don't have that CVE on your current configuration? Right. So how fast would they have to do this? What what, what are we Um, looking at in terms of timing? Because as I think about... uh, you know, again, having dealt with regulations for a while, this that my first thought was, well, you can write that down. But if it says I've got to do it, do I have to do it today? Do I have to do it in six weeks? I mean, what's what's a realistic time frame? So I think for CVEs, it'd be pretty easy to have a time frame that was across the board. So I mean, regardless of sector or business size, right. I think for materiality, you could do a different time period for size of business. To be completely honest with you, because okay. that should actually impact your materiality definition. And then for zero days, I think it's a longer right. term, of yeah. course. So yeah. in my I think mind. That would, that, would, that would, of course, be make sense. But so like, let's just use an example. Like if Log4j came out and there was the issue and it's, you, you know what ubiquitous, you know, you probably have it somewhere. Um, and there was a mandate from whatever oversight agency that said, tell us wherever you have Log4j. Mm-hmm. And you've got 24 hours, you've got 48 hours, you've got 72 hours, you've got a week, you've got a month. What, what would yeah. that time frame look like? Well, think about it right now. If you have to report on a incident in 72 hours for some organizations, that's also nearly impossible. Yeah. Um, well, not necessarily. I, I, I it depends on what you have. Yeah. yeah. I, well, I, that depends on what you buy. Yeah. Traditionally. Well, and you can't mandate what to buy. But let me answer your question. So I actually also really like the NIST 2 model on this, which is in with 72 hours, tell me as much as you can. Yeah. And we'll determine some type of criticality scoring for this specific incident. And then I I remember, I don't remember what the follow-up deadline is, but there's an extension 
where you have to provide more information. Yes. And I think what's required in the more information piece could be more specific, but demonstrate that you can look for things in 72 hours actually should not be that difficult of a task for any organization today, if they have security, if they thought about security at all. Yeah. But I mean, I think about like degrees of confidence in their results. So can can they, is it okay if they miss something? I mean, what if they did miss something and how would you audit for that? Is it okay if they miss something? So like, again, they, that's... We, we'll, we'll use the log4j, for example. So let's say ostensibly out of 10,000 systems, um, they've got a 5% hit rate on log4j, and that's going to be X number. And let's say one system, they were not able to detect it, but it was existing. So better for whom would be my reply, because if we're talking governance, the goal is to benefit the public. We're talking organization specific, back to my original diatribe, yes. the goal is to reduce the severity of impacts. Right. So and I think- Reduce the severity of impact. I see. So yeah. I think if you're reporting to the government, the government has no interest in pushing back and saying, what if, what about, <laughs> what, what? they don't have the time, they don't have the resources to go back and say, hey, you've provided X, Y, and Z, but also, mm -hmm. do you know, what about this? Are you sure about that? Well, it depends That's... on the enforcement mechanism, because in some cases, like uh, the, the NERC SIP standard, zero, zero defect standard. I mean, you're required to be 100% compliant, 365, 7 by 24. Uh, and if you, you know, even if you did like 55.1 in a 55 on a clear day on a 10 lane freeway with no other cars in sight for miles, right, you right. still broke the law. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you have examples of where there's been a good excuse for falling short for compliant. You know what I mean? But I yeah. think from a company perspective, it's in their best interest to do the best they can. Yes. And I think from a government perspective, when you're mandating anything, you should mandate in a way that companies are set up and enabled to do the best they can. And yes. that's and why I come back to threat hunting. Yeah. And I see that, that it, like I say, that, that would be contingent upon how it's monitored and enforced. Enforced. Yeah. And, but I think it would actually be easier in my mind to enforce. Show me that you can find something when I call upon you and I'll give you some details on what that will look like. Then it is, tell me if you've been quote unquote impacted by something quote unquote material that's yeah. now quote unquote an incident. Yeah, well, that's that's part of the, the discussion around incident. Everyone seems to really struggle with, you know, the fact that the lawyers are just going to hash out what incident means versus the actual operational people who know. Yep. Um, and it comes down to the old, you know, the old uh, senator's definition of porn. I don't, I don't know how to describe it, but I know it when I see it. Right, uh, and that's not in the best interest of the public, and it's, no, it's not, not in the best interest of the company. Those I, I kinds agree. of, yeah. I agree. Now we we do have at least one model, and I'm the first person to crap all over the NERC SIP standards, but they actually have a fairly decent structure, uh, not around attempts to compromise. So they still got to work on the definitions for the near miss stuff. That that frankly is is yeah. uh, still forming. But um, the incident reporting piece is actually pretty clear. If it impacts your operational tech functions and they have those described and lined out very clearly mm -hmm. what, what operational functions are, uh, if it impacts those functions, you got to report it. It's that simple. I mean, if it impacts yeah. your ability to operate these things, these ways, you have to report that yeah. within an hour. And I think we've actually seen, I know the, the media is not the best metric, so let me put that out there, no. <laughs> but things that become, or things that, in, incidents that garner media attention have all those same fundamental yeah. uh, attributes. Yeah. So yeah. it's going to be out there anyway, if it's that kind of level of, of, of impact. And so back to it's in the best interest of the company to include all of those decisions 
in their distinction of what an incident is. I think that what's coming out of the SEC is exactly that. Operational risk. What does that mean? How do we define it? The risk is now you're going to have 7,000 definitions. Yeah. So, but again, it's in your best interest to do more, not less in how you define things, how you look for things, what you disclose and report on, and preventing massive incidents where you hope somebody parachutes and it helps you. Because I think organizations are realizing that that's not going to happen. Yeah. I think there's been a, this, I've never used this phrase before, a healthy disillusionment with the ability of government to parachute in and help with, you know, situations like the ransomware in Atlanta. Everyone did a great job in that response. Yeah. But they were still offline for how long? They still had so many systems impacted. Nobody is coming to save you. So if you want to skirt the process, if you want to skirt the definitions, and if you want to skirt the liability, feel free. But at the end of the day, when people find out, because there are still going to be receipts on that, even if you didn't go look for things, then somebody's going to be liable for those those decisions and considerations. And that's really where Circea and SEC come together. And they're going to make a hailstorm for somebody someday. Yeah. Uh, when they're both the ironed out. Yeah. Somebody's going to be the, everyone's waiting for this uh, massive cascading incident. I'm waiting for the one person, the one <laughs> executive yeah. who has both of those things come together to ruin that person's career. Oh. And hopefully well, I don't know or like them, but you know. <laughs> hopefully hopefully they're, they're not they're not in our circle. Yeah. Well, and you actually see CISOs in their um, professional networks worried and yeah. you, you see this kind of disclaimer that nobody wants to be a CISO anymore yeah. that's a horrible consideration for the private sector it's a horrible consideration for the government that's not a real world outcome that anyone should fantasize over you know i hadn't thought of it that way but that is exactly where we are and that is a terrible outcome that's yes. a terrible unintended consequence of the situation we need to reverse that mm-hmm. okay we need to get people on figuring out how to but reverse. at the same time you need CISOs to say i'm gonna go out on a limb And I'm going to have a very specific definition for my organization of what an incident looks like. And I'm going to have very regimented requirements for the receipts, the artifacts, the data, the logs that we keep. And I'm going to be ready for anything that the government throws my way, not just NERC SIP because I know I'm going to be fine, not just CIA because I know I have X amount of time. That goes back to that 60-40 or 80-20 debate. What kind of a leader do you want to be? Yeah. And what kind of an organization do you want to be? Do you want to sink those costs and then tweak them later? Do you want to watch everyone else sink costs and stand back and say, tell me the definitions and then I'll give you whatever you want? Or do you want to go to jail? Like those are your three right. options right now. That's your candy land. Um, <laughs> All right. Well, I think we're close to agreement. I think we're not too far apart. We're not like on polar opposite ends of the spectrum. I think we're both kind of saying no. close to the same thing with a slightly higher preference toward threat hunting versus breach notification. Okay, but also really quick. In your mind, so I love how we're going between real world reality and perfect world. If breach notification were number one, if it ruled, if it were the, it's not a control, but if it were the mandate to rule all mandates. Paramount mandate, yeah. In a perfect world, if I as an organization hear about an incident that impacted a very similar organization to mine, it almost mirrored me in size, uh, facility number, region and product or service that I provide. I may know their CEO, yeah, that kind of right. Yeah. What so say that that company has disclosed something in your in your perfect world, if I mirror that company almost one to one, what's the best response that me as company number two hearing about that breach can do in a perfect world? What do you hope that that second company 
does next. Not the first company, the second yeah, company. The second company, they they do threat hunting to see. Okay, what, that's what I was wondering. <laughs> to see what. But happened. if it's not enforced, because, do they have the, to? Then you'd have the data to do it, right? You'd have the breach notification information that would help. But if nobody is making sure you're doing it, do you think companies are going to altru altruistically say, "Oh my gosh, we look just like that company that was popped. Let's go look for that." Uh, no, I think, but that that has so far been a natural, uh, like invisible hand of the market kind of statement. Where there, we've seen a lot of companies have knee jerk reactions that were, I mean, whether they were close and in some cases not even close. Because I remember when Home Depot came out, that was a big deal, and companies that were not even close to their kind of operation were like, "Well, we don't want to be Home Depot," and yeah. now uh, every operation is like, "Well, we don't want to be Colonial, especially if you're anywhere in the industrial spaces." Um, yeah. So I think there's still that that effect happens right now. But have you actually seen the receipts? No. Have you seen people say, hey, I don't want to be Home Depot. Let's hire somebody or let's buy a tool. Or have you seen people say, hey, I don't want to be Home Depot. Let's make sure we know what we have. We know what's vulnerable. We know how to prevent effects-based incidents yeah. and high consequence impacts from our business. Because I haven't seen that. Most of it's been the former. Yeah. It's and so that's lip service. Whereas I think threat hunting and vulnerability understanding for operational networks, which goes to operational risk, which goes to the SEC compliance. <laughs> the only way to mandate that you've actually gone and looked for things, even if you don't want to theoretically become uh, another named and shamed company in a headline, that is different in, in theory and in practice. Okay, well then let me ask it this way. Uh, is there a way to get one without the other of our, of our perspectives? Yeah, is there a way to hunt without having things to hunt for that are kind of shiny no, I mean, objects? Like, from our perspective, because I, I think what we're we're we both have kind of you know threat hunting versus uh, breach notice. Um, I think is there a way to get one, one without? Because if you're doing threat hunting and you're not providing that information out um, in terms of what you found, right? Mm -hmm. Then there's no value to it other than just for that single company. So as a regulation, you're only helping a single company at that point. Right. Well, then right. it becomes that third part of the, the triad, which is information sharing, which I think is different than breach notification. So there's a well, way to do, you know, aggregate information sharing. So back to the, the very earliest comment that I made about reducing the severity of impacts and having those security events managed in real time and mitigated in real time, that information should be shared, but all the right. companies are going to want to anonymize that. Well, and so that's then, where I think it's it's okay. I mean, like with breach notification, if you participate and you do breach notice, I mean, there should be some elements of safe harbor, of anonymization, so that data can go into basically a large pool of information. And yeah. from that pool, whatever vertical is got a regulatory agency over like sector-specific things, they can take a look at that aggregate data and then regulate sure. more smartly because we but know it's, working what's not. But it's still in a company's best interest to want to report on events that are not incidents before they become incidents. So you'd yeah, still yeah. have that yeah. active hunting portion, in my mind, be the proactive piece of that. Or you have organizations that have incidents and suffer breaches and have to report on the whole scale incident. Again, there's a threshold here. It's a spectrum. It's not a one-to-one a -one dichotomy. Yeah. But back to the Circea thing, I don't know if in the future, even with Safe Harbor, if there's going to be the same level of anonymity that there is today for these things. I think, yeah. Well, I know if things are public, NAS, they're public. Yeah, exactly. in the NAS world, you, it's public. So yeah, even if maybe yeah. your liability is absolved to a certain extent, your reputational yeah. hit—I wouldn't say cost because it's not always a cost—your reputational hit or dip or whatever it might be—is still there. And so for companies, understanding proactive security versus an incident 
I think getting people over this hump of, no, I want to mitigate events in real time rather than wait for something bad to happen and call in, you know, the cavalry, which you still should and can, but which one would you rather, rather have? I would rather do proactive security and active hunting to the best of my ability, whatever that looks like. If it's a tool, if it's a team, if it's using CTI manually and doing the best I can, that's in my best interest to prevent a major incident. Yeah. So basically see the smoke before the fire. Exactly. Yeah. And again, that goes back to what's in your best interest as a company. And I think the more that we have, I think that they kind of are in tandem, of course, because the more that we have these ramifications for incidents, the more you'll see people push to do wanting to see the smoke first, right? Right now, I don't know if there's really good incentives for either. No, no, there's not for either one. That That's, that's why we're, you know, I guess if, for those of us that have any influence, we should be influencing, pushing for both of these in right. tandem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, don't get rid of your retainer just because you think you can find everything before all the needles in the haystack before they become the yeah, fires. Like but driving yeah. without insurance. No. Right. Of course. <laughs> You'd be a great yeah. driver. But... You do need both. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You should definitely have. But then also those retainers don't scale. So that's a whole different conversation around yeah. the cybersecurity market, which is if there is some kind of catastrophic uh, impact, yeah. they're not going to be able to service every single organization in theory right it depends True. on yeah they, right. they can't scale with the talent right. that they need to go to that many organizations at once so then in that situation do you want to be somebody who's found an event early on or found some type of activity or a vulnerability early on that's not mitigated or some type of really obvious connection to the internet or you know something early yeah or do you want to be the person that now has a major incident a major disruption to your process some things are shut down you've had a huge disruption and also your IR firm is really busy. Yeah. Yeah. Or you're getting, you know, whoever they can hire. Oh, and <laughs> also the answer. government is calling and also you have two to four days to talk. To. Yeah. Yeah. And, and your attorneys are scrambling. Right. Yeah. No, that, it's, right. it's very persuasive, very compelling. Um, I'm, I'm still, still chewing on whether or not I want to swing over to your side, but I'm, I'm not there yet. <laughs> yeah. I did take <laughs> debate uh, back in high school, you know, so. Yes. I'm no, I'm no rhetoric master. I'm, I'm, I'm usually. A, a, a I do think master. though, I'll push back on one thing you mentioned, which is um, the silent hand of the market has been this active hunting for known indicators of compromise, typically after a major breach. Um, mm -hmm. I, I have not seen that to the extent that I've seen it stated uh, publicly. Yeah. What I've seen is, uh, and maybe to state it more clearly, um, when something like that happens, the question comes from executives because typically they don't think about this from, in a security professional's uh, lexicon yeah. by any stretch. Yeah. Yeah. They turn to somebody in the organization or some people in the organization that they think is responsible and they say, well, could this happen to us? That's the Nixon moment when, um, what was the movie that came out? Strange Love? Yes. And he could said, could that, or maybe it was War Games. And he was like, could that happen to us? Strange Love, I think. Yeah. And it then, is. yeah. And the answer was, yeah. And, and yeah. they went and figured it out. Yeah. Yeah. So that's typically what happens. And it does have a, could this happen to us moment? And in some cases, um, there is maybe a better response where they say, they turn to the right people and they say, make sure this can't happen to us. Right. Um, that also does happen in a much smaller number. But the biggest one is, I want to know and if this can happen to us. How would they make sure that it wouldn't happen to them? You, you, like you said, executives <laughs> don't speak security terms. They know they don't. They don't. No, do. I mean, what what practice would they then have to take up to make sure uh, they they turn to whoever they think is responsible for it and make them figure it out? 
That's right, right. By we're actively looking, we're talking for, at executives, or <laughs> but they need to go and actively look for things, right? So some some level of hunting. <laughs> yes, they would, or they would need to at least see if they had the the same technologies and all those other things that come with it. Yeah. same practices or suppliers. Or... Can I ask you one more question? Because I would just love your perspective on it. These uh, crowdsourced pen testing companies in the IT space, I've seen them dip their toes in OT and I'm not totally against it. And I would love your perspective. Obviously, I understand that you can't touch control systems with a live pen test. But what's yeah. the threshold? What's the the lay of the land there? Because I've seen like oil and gas has benefited from crowdsourced pen testing, you know, everything above layer three, whatever yeah. it looks like in the Purdue model. Um, what do you think about that, that model? I like it. I think there's a lot to gain from it um, I, with obvious, very clear rules of engagement. Right. Um, I think my my bigger challenge with just the concept of pen testing is a lot of organizations really don't know what that means. And they ask for a pen testing when they're thinking of something else mm. and they don't really understand what it what it means. And yet the fact that you can't pen test everything um, and it's a there, there's a lot of benefit to pen testing, but there's also a lot of um, gray area. Well, there's a lot of use of the pen test in ways that are not productive inside the company as much as they are productive. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I've seen certain requirements or things omitted yeah. for the wrong reasons, I would say. Yeah. 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 Or they they um it ends up just being an argument argumentation point around, well, there were certain allowances given, like you gave them domain credentials or you, you know, there's other there's Yeah. Some, so they didn't some, have to work for that portion. Yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah. They be they they turn out to be done in the wrong organization with the wrong culture, which is yeah. a lot of them, um, they end up being very high friction, lower value efforts. And that's not because pen testing is a bad thing or a bad idea or pen testers are bad or the principle is bad. It's that the companies asking for it, frankly, are bad at using it the right way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So just like any other tool, I mean, yeah, I scream and shout about tuning <laughs> detection tools. Yeah. Um, I saw a couple of years ago when the, after the Norse Hydro event that they actually had an open rec for a pen tester. Do mm. we know who that person is? Can I, this no. is a call. This is a call to that person. Cause I would think on any podcast or any forum, I would love to hear that yeah. person's experience, how they've built their, their position, their team, whatever. Um, I thought that was crazy when that, I, I love to hunt through for OSINT um, job yeah. descriptions that are posted for a number of reasons, a number of markets, competitors, competitive Intel, market Intel. I just think it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, you can also learn like what systems a company uses based on like what systems admin positions they put out there, uh, what versions of what software, what hardware that they use. Um, but I would love to meet that person or get them on your podcast or whatever. So if anyone knows them, I think it'd be really interesting to speak with them. Yeah. Well, we'll make an open call to the podcast listeners. If anybody knows someone or knows someone who knows this person, um, yeah. let me know. And then we'll get them on the podcast and you and I can, can Grill them. questions. Yeah. <laughs> do you prefer <laughs> hunting or reporting? <laughs> <laughs> okay. That'll be the topic. Which one do you prefer? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Pat. You got it. Thank you so much for being on. I appreciate Anytime. it. Anytime. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, to to uh, on to the next thing. And I'm sure we will debate this in our next face to face meeting, as always. I can't wait. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Ampere Industrial Security Critical Assets Podcast. You can find us on all your favorite podcast sources. So please like subscribe and share with your colleagues. Check out our other content, such as blogs, news, and more at AmpereSec.com. That's A-M-P-E-R-E-S-E-C.com. 
Ampere Industrial Security, securing your world.